It is great to have you here this morning uh, on this uh, steamy, beautiful August day. My name is Dan McDonald. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Toronto. Wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith, we are glad that you are here. This is a great place to ask and answer the questions that are most important, that the people of this earth have been asking for thousands of years. Why am I here? Is there a God? Can I know this God? And what would it be like to be known and loved by this God? These are the questions that we have been asking for millennia, and this is why you are here. This morning's reading is going to be found in the book of Jeremiah as we continue our series on faith and how it applies to our work. And here to read the Scriptures is Sarah. Our reading today is from Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 4 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, we have been looking at the issues of faith and work, and we are concluding it with this message today. We've seen that work is a part of worship, Work matters to God. Work is integral to how we express our faith, and that the gospel radically transforms what we understand work to be. Ideas of rest and ambition, and what it means to follow the calling of Jesus. We've learned that to follow Jesus is to follow Him anywhere and everywhere, including into rejection and exile. 
Christians over many centuries have found ourselves in a position of cultural exile. Today, in most parts of Asia, in China, in India, in many, many nations, Christianity is a small and marginalized minority, persecuted often. In Canada, we are not persecuted, but we are in a position of marginalization and have been for some decades now. And even south of the border in the United States, it's beginning to happen as well. And what I find both Christians and those who are not Christians are interested in is this. How does the church respond to being put in a place of marginalization, rejection, and even hostility? What do we do when the culture is indifferent? What do we do when living out our faith can be discredited? What do we do at work when it may threaten a promotion? This morning we're going to zoom out because we have dealt with a lot of specific matters of the Christian faith and how it affects your work, and we're going to zoom out to what the Q&A has kept asking, what about a hostile culture and how do we live it out? And so if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, we're glad that you are here. You've been watching Christians respond to this cultural moment for a long time, and you've probably been wondering if you've been watching TV about these resentful, angry Christians you see, and you wonder, is that what Jesus teaches His people? And the gospel says, no, that what Jesus teaches us is to love a city and a culture, even one that exiles us. Jesus says we're to do two things. Firstly, seek the welfare of the city we live in. Secondly, seek the Lord of that city. Seek the welfare of the city and seek the Lord of that city. Here, in these words written 700 years before Jesus actually came, and actually about 600 years, and therefore about 2,600 years ago, we find very relevant words because the prophet Jeremiah has a specific word to God's people then, the Israelites, and it's the same word that Jesus has to God's people now you and I. And that is this, seek the welfare of the city even when it exiles you. In the center of this paragraph, this first paragraph, it says, seek the welfare of the city. But the paragraph actually begins with a startling fact that needs to be understood, and that is this. It says, this is what the Lord says to all the exiles whom I am sending into exile. Did you hear that? God says, the reason we're in exile if we are Christians is because God has put us there. The reason we are in exile is because God wants us in exile for His gracious purposes. You see, here God promised the nation of Israel He would put them into exile if they stopped listening to Him. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, before they even enter the land, God promises that He will bless those who obey Him, but He will exile the Israelites if they disobey. And in fact, they did disobey, and that's why Jeremiah knows and prophesies and sees them being exiled. But the God of the Old Testament is the same God we have. He's a sovereign God. He still sends people into exile, and in the New Testament, He reveals more clearly what that means. Because when Jesus came, He gave us the full reasons why we would be exiled. 
In the New Testament, the gospel shows us this world is always and always will be not our home if we're Christians. We were made to be with God. We were made for a heavenly home. In Hebrews chapter 11, talking about the whole of the history of the Jewish people right to the day of the beginning of the Christian church, the writer describes the reality that the New Testament unveils that was the reality all along. He says this, these all died in faith, these heroes of the Old Testament, not having received the things that were promised them, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens on this earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. This sense of exile then is because we were made for something greater than this world. The city may love us, the city may reject us, but in both cases, the gospel says this city we live in now is a pale imitation of the city we will one day inhabit if we have faith in Jesus. And between Jesus and this present world, there is an implacable, unchangeable tension. They cannot be reconciled completely. You see, the world values pride and self-glory. Jesus taught us, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world values filling up your resume and your bucket list with experiences and accomplishments. Jesus came being in the form of God and made himself nothing emptied himself, humbled himself. It says in Philippians 5, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus actually told his disciples something very sobering. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. You see, the first principle of seeking the welfare of the city is to know this fact, that God has sent us into exile. And why is this fact so important? Why does it begin here? I think because nobody likes being exiled. Nobody likes being on the outside looking in, Christians included. We have seen over the past year the discussion of race embroil North America because the black people have been on the outside looking in for centuries. Do they like it? No. Should they like it? No at the center of the civil rights movements of the 20th century, the women's movement, the black civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, these movements have at their centerpiece a desire to not be marginalized. There is something distinctly human about hating it. And so Christians naturally, like anyone else, hate it when they're marginalized. But the gospel says to Christians, you you should feel marginalized more deeply. You should feel disconnected more deeply because you are awaiting a different city. And secondly, you should respond to cultural rejection differently because there is a difference between me and this world. 
And if you follow me, you will face the rejection, hostility, and misunderstanding of the world around you. The resentment and anger that others feel about exile, others have the right to. But you, Christian, I have sent you into exile. Think differently. Now, that doesn't mean we don't advocate for our rights as citizens. That doesn't mean we allow this government or any other government to treat us improperly or unjustly. But the resentment and anger that can well up within us, put that aside. That is exactly what the church in North America is struggling to do, to put it aside. But if we remember deeply that God has sent us into exile, I think it will be easier for us to do that. Then the passage goes on to say, seek the welfare of the city, not only by knowing I sent you, but also by building roots in this city. God says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, raise your sons and daughters, give them away to be married. (laughs) Gardens, houses, Raising kids and seeing them married, what is he saying? He's saying, stay a while, build roots, make this your home, invest in the city. Now, there's a reason he's saying that, because there's a temptation in these words. The temptation is, if you're going to seek the welfare of the city and you're going to stay a while, here's the temptation. Well, I'm just going to fit in. I'm going to build houses. I'm going to, I'm going to marry my kids off. Well, I'm going to, then I'm going to adopt this city's values. I'm going to become one with this city. Is the city politically conservative? I'm going to be politically conservative. Is the city politically progressive? I'm going to become politically progressive. Does the city value X, Y status and money? I'm going to go for those things. I am going to accommodate to the values of my city. This is exactly the temptation, by the way, that they felt. Because in the Babylonian Empire, this is exactly what they did. The Babylonians would take the leaders of a conquered country and resettle them on the outskirts of Babylon. The Jewish people had exactly this happen. Tens of thousands got moved by the Kabar Canal on the outskirts of Babylon. And then Babylon said, give up your gods. Give up your ethics. Come be Babylonian and we will give you success in our city. And our city does the same. It invites us to individually accommodate and reconfigure our beliefs and our faith. And it will give us power, money, fame, reputation. And just as he says, build houses and and, and raise your daughters and sons, he says, but increase and don't decrease. Multiply yourselves. He's telling the people of God, to build roots in the city without losing their peopleness of God identity. He's saying, be a distinct city inside that city. Resist the temptation to accommodate in your work. Do not simply work to the standards of the work culture around you. Work to the beautiful high standards of loving your neighbor, your colleague, as yourself, as Jesus has called us to. Do not backstab even if your culture backstabs. Honor your colleagues with your words and your lips. Do not deflect blame for your failures, which is endemic in many work cultures, but accept the truth and let your work speak for itself. 
Jesus said it clearly to the church in the New Testament era. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Do not hide your light under a lampstand. Do not let your salt lose its saltiness. What is he saying? He's saying, don't dilute your faith. Invest without diluting. Can you do that? It feels hard. Yes. So in your work, you should have the integrity that looks like a light in that world of work you inhabit. In your studies, you should have values and ethics that make other students go, huh, in the way you treat coworkers and in the way you treat friends and other people in the city. You should see the city as this profoundly broken and yet beautiful place for you to invest your love, your time, and your energy. If you're here for only a few years, if you're here to get from the city the resume you need, the education that you need, the bucket list experiences that you need or desire, then you know what you're doing. You're renting the city. I'm not saying you're renting in the city. That's a whole different game, and the housing prices here are crazy. I'm talking about renting the city itself. City, I will give you three years of my life if you will give me this degree, this resume, this down payment, and then I'm out of here. That's renting. You pay the rent of your time, and you extract the resume, the down payment, the education, but you don't build roots. Build roots. Ask yourself these questions. Am I willing to grow roots into my city and love it? Or am I merely here for a time and I know it? Are you merely merely using the city to enhance your life and career aspirations? Or are you looking at the city and going, where is the brokenness that I can help heal? Are you quietly tempted to reconfigure or put in the closet your beliefs if you're a Christian? Are you unwilling to publicly proclaim that you believe in Jesus? I have been talking to a lot of 20-somethings who are working and living downtown, and it's getting harder. It's more and more tempting. I'm with you. I think if I was 20-something and, and, and I was working downtown in one of the big financial firms or insurance firms or whatever, I think I would feel the same. It's a deep temptation. But Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Don't hide. You're the light. Don't put it under a lampstand. Build deep roots. Build deep roots. Sink into the city. Because you can't bless a city that you're renting. If you want to have a long-term impact, if you want to really help change a city, you've got to sink roots. That's the first thing. But the second thing is seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This this is the gospel way. You see, there's another temptation here. And that temptation is, oh, multiply and don't decrease. Fine. We're going to stay in the city as a tribe. I was uh, talking online with a, a skeptic just a little while ago. And I was talking to him about this idea of us trying to engage the city 
and, and loved the city, but, but that Christians often accommodated to the values that he knew and well and that he subscribed to. And the skeptic said to me, I, I don't see you Christians accommodating. I'm sorry. I see you fighting. But you're only fighting for what you need. You're only fighting for what your particular faith system values. You don't seem to care for the poor, the marginalized, the drug addicted. You just care for your stuff. And against that temptation, not the temptation to accommodate and rent the city, but the temptation to separate and resent and hate and fight the city, there's a third way. This is the gospel way, to seek the welfare. The, the Hebrew word is shalom. Um, shalom is a hard word to translate into English. Uh, Tim Keller, best-selling author and pastor, calls it flourishing in every dimension. I think that's a pretty good definition of shalom. Helping the city flourish in every dimension, seeking its true welfare, means to get involved in the economic welfare, the social welfare, the justice welfare, the spiritual welfare, the environmental architectural welfare, the psychological and emotional health of a city. Do you see? It means that we as Christians are called to care about every facet of the city, not just about what directly concerns us as individual Christians, but about the whole city to seek its beauty. That does include its knowledge of God, but it includes much more than that as well. We should care deeply about social justice and whether racism is embedded within our institutions and cultural attitudes. We should care deeply about the financial solvency of our city and whether we can pay our bills or whether we are pushing off a debt to future generations. We should care deeply about childcare transportation, personal freedoms, the role of government, the response of the, the pandemic, these things we should care for. Do you hear the beautiful challenging balance in these verses? Don't lose your saltiness, yeah? Be a unique, growing city of God within the city. Build roots. But then as salt dissolves into every part of a meal to flavor it, and also sometimes to preserve. So we are called to dissolve, as it were, to go into and flavor and make beautiful every single area of the city. I was just talking to someone here before the service about architecture and the, how architecture beautifies a city. It does. Salt to be salt must remain salt, but to be effective as salt, it must dissolve as salt and flavor the whole dish. All of your work, all of your leisure even, contributes to the shalom, the flourishing of the city. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life, loving the city so much that we begin to see that the way for the church to flourish is to care for the city, is to have Jesus' heart for it. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that kind of paradoxical that if you love the city for itself, you will so inhabit the love of Jesus that people will see the love of Jesus in you. And they'll wonder, what is it in this person that makes them so strangely, contagiously attractive and compelling? So how do you love a city like that? How do you love a city that seems to not want to hear from you? that's kind of resistant to you all the time? 
one thing you should remember. The city may say that, but the city still needs us because the city still needs Jesus. Listen to Danica Samuel. She's a black artist, part of the entertainment and media industry in Toronto who's moving out because she is tired of what she sees in the culture of the media and entertainment professions. She says this, whether over coffee dates or hanging at the crib, almost everyone I talk to in my industry feels negatively about the media, entertainment, and creative communities. Many of us formulate groups and cliques with the best intentions of changing this narrative and building one another up positively. The problem is that it quickly becomes cliquey due to the same jadedness. Over the years, there have been various cliques established in the city formally and informally with the sole intention of bettering and growing the creative and media landscapes in Toronto. But what ends up happening is that people start to label these groups negatively for putting only their friends on the map, and a vicious cycle continues. Also, mixed in with this, there's this crab-in-the-bucket mentality. I once had a high-profile and well-recognized talent admit to me that sharing their craft with others would result in those people taking opportunities so they wouldn't share. As a result of this cancerous mentality, we collectively have become guarded and often bitter. We see someone else's success as a threat to ours. I cannot stress how dangerous this is. This toxic mentality is leading us down a road of comparison and envy, and it can be extremely difficult to see the light of day. A lot of people are stuck in that tunnel. Heck, I was too. I unfollowed, I blocked, muted, and canceled connections with many people in Toronto because I was like that. I couldn't stand to see the success of my peers. By the way, this is not just the media and entertainment industries. I see people out in this congregation whom I have spoken to in the financial industry, in the legal industry, some parts of the medical profession that have exactly this kind of toxic culture in this city. Why is that? It's not because of the profession. It's not because certain old-school thinkers are leading those professions. It's because of who we are as humans. This writer has diagnosed the symptoms of the issue, but there's an underlying cause yet unnamed, and this is what it is. In our DNA as humans is a desire for self-protection, self-advancement, self-actualization, self-pleasure, self-promotion, and self-glory. Self, self, self. There's a thin veneer of politically correct, righteous things that we say and do, but it just takes a little bit to pull it off, and the selfishness is revealed. The gospel calls this sin. Sin is an orientation towards your own self-glory to the exclusion of others if needed, and in defiance of the God who called you to love them and to serve them. Men and women, the gospel calls us to seek the welfare of the city for its own sake. The city does not understand this, but this city is stuck in this cycle of selfishness, and it needs the beauty and the power of the gospel to help it break it. And so I need to say, 
We're called to seek the welfare of the city. No, we're sent into exile. Build roots and seek its welfare. But we don't have the power unless we give the city the power of Jesus. And that's why our second point is simple. We must seek the Lord of the city. In the last few verses here, it says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promises to you and bring you back. For I know the plans that I have for you, which Brian quoted. God says to Israel, one day I'm going to bring you out of exile. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to Israel. We know that happened in history. But in the New Testament church, we've understood this ancient verse as meaning something more. Something that pertains to Jesus himself. You see, he says, one day will come when we will pray and seek God and find him. We will seek him with our whole heart. What he means is what the Old Testament calls a new heart. Has that day happened? I submit to you it has. 600 plus years after these were written, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus came. And he revealed to us the truth that we are all exiled from God because of this self, self, self. God loves people who love. He judges people who only love themselves and who primarily love themselves. And God, though, seeing us, going our own way, chasing our own glory, ignoring Him, sent His Son out of heaven into exile on earth. The Son, the infinite Son of God, fully infinite in power, became limited to a human body, to weakness, to vulnerability, to disease, to aging, and then to rejection, to arrest, and to torture. But willingly, he allowed this exile to go to the depths, even the depths of being nailed to a cross. And on the cross, he said two things. He said, firstly, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. He didn't resent. He didn't hate back. In love, out of love for them, he let them hate him enough to kill him. And in killing him, they did not know that he was willingly taking their selfishness, their sin and the debt of it and paying it on their behalf for God. For God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the exile that we actually feel most deeply but don't know its name is the tension, the exile, the separation between us and God. And if you're here and you are not yet a Christian, you have that separation. Your self-orientation has created that separation. But Jesus has come to pay and forgive the debt of that sin. The Son of God went into Jerusalem. It was nicknamed the city of God when he was there. The Son of God went into the city of God and they threw him out. They rejected him and they exiled him to a hill called Golgotha and they nailed him to a cross on that hill outside the city gates. He was exiled from the city of God, but he willingly allowed that to happen so that you and I, self, self, self people, 
we could become citizens of the city of God, the heavenly one. That's what Jesus did. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, this may be the day for you to realize I'm exiled from God by my self-orientation, by my sin. It, it separates me from God. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. Your own desire for control has exiled you from a loving God who wants to guide you and have communion with you. We are guilty of self-glory, self-control, of those things as our highest and our deepest loves. We need grace. We need mercy. God offers it in Jesus. Will you accept the gift offered? Ask Jesus to come in and guide you and forgive you, and he will reconcile you to God. Christian, you have been reconciled. You have a new home waiting for you. But you have been made a stranger and an alien on this earth. Despite that, seek the welfare of the city. Build roots, don't rent the city you live in. Be a public Christian. Let your work show the glory of Jesus. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek the growth of the church in the city. Be part of building God's city in this beautiful but broken city. And seek Him. Seek Him daily in prayer. Ask Him to empower you to reflect Him every day at your work. Rest in the promise of the city to come. Thank God that Jesus has bought the price for you to inherit it. And seek the welfare of the city by seeking the Lord of the city, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness to us. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. We have a time of Q&A. Um, it's going to be a bit abbreviated because we've had a long service. But I've got three, and then I will answer the other ones uh, by uh, personally texting you back. But here they are. What does sinking roots look like? Uh, it means uh, investing your time and your energy into the brokenness and the healing of a city. It means considering living in that city for a long time. I know this is an expensive city. I know a lot of us aren't sure we can own anymore. Ask people from Beijing, Shanghai, New York, London, there are a lot of people who live their whole lives in major cities like this who invest in it but never get to buy in it. You can, you can rent in the city and still invest in the city. Build roots. Get deeply into the arteries of your community. Find places of need and go and help. How do you approach helping your city without having a savior complex? Um, well, I, uh, that's, a, that's an insightful question. Um, if you approach the city knowing that you yourself have all these selfish inclinations, that you yourself are deeply broken, but that you have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus, I think you can come with a humility that says, I just want to do my part. And if you come recognizing that the city's too big and the brokenness is too real and too deep for you to really change all of it, I think those two things can really help with the Savior Complex. Last question. Uh, I'm, oh, this is a long one. I'm about to move to a different city in Ontario 
uh, I don't, I struggle sometimes on how to be accommodating while still setting boundaries. Do you have any verses I can meditate or any personal experiences you could share on a similar situation? This is a deeply personal question, and it deserves a long and more customized answer. So I'm going to ask whoever texted me this to email me, dan at gracetoronto.ca, and I'll answer that question personally, pastorally, and uh, we'll take the time that that one deserves. But thank you. I'm going to um, pray now, and then I'm going to give it to Brian. Father, I thank you and praise you for this time. And I pray now that we would sink deep roots out of love for the city, and that we would, with the power of the one who was exiled from his city and died to pay our sin, we would have that resurrection power to really invest lovingly into our city, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.